0: This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on iTunes.Villanova.edu. About
1: 27 years, I've covered lots of different stuff. Right now, I cover immigration. Uh, For a time, I was a foreign correspondent in the Middle East, uh, in Jerusalem. Uh, I was a national correspondent in Boston, covering New England. And right now, I uh, cover mostly immigration locally, although I've traveled a bit uh, and was in Honduras, where Juan uh, is right now, uh, about nine months ago, writing about uh, San Pedro Sulo, where there's a lot of uh, violence, and about a, uh, an orphanage in another part of the country called Napoliso. Um We are really very lucky to have uh, Juan Chien with us today. Um, Juan is the Catholic Relief Services country representative for Honduras. He's based in the country's capital, uh, Tegucigalpa, and Juan is in position to bring us what we in journalism call the ground truth from this part of Central America. He began his CRS career in 2001, serving in Zambia with the responsibility for implementing HIV and AIDS policy. Sticking with Africa, he moved to Angola for four years, where his focus was community self-sufficiency and sustainable development. Before coming to CRS, Juan uh, worked in Mozambique with the United Nations Development Program and spent two years as a Peace Corps volunteer in Namibia. In the private sector, he has worked as an investment manager at two banks in New York City. He has a BS in mathematics from Caldwell College and a Master's in International Policy from the Monterey Institute of International Studies. So welcome, Juan, Juan has a presentation for you.
2: I have a presentation, I hope you all can hear me. Yeah, am I good in the back? All right, so thank you very much, Sue and and PJ, for having me here, and it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I was talking to them earlier saying that we very rarely get to tell these stories. We're just implementing, we're at meetings, and we're writing proposals. Very rarely do I get to come to the US and actually explain what we do. Uh, so this is a, this is a pleasure for me as well. So like Michael was saying, I've been with CRS for 14 years, started in Africa, and, um, and I moved to Honduras almost six years ago. I moved during the presidential coup, um, so it started off on, on that foot, and basically it's never ended. So, uh, we've been working since last summer, this influx of unaccompanied minors, we've been on the front line because CRS is one of the only NGOs in the country that does anything with with the youth. So I'm going to, my presentation today is about some of the reasons why these youth, like Marcelo, this morning, uh, articulately (coughs) explained why they're coming over uh, to the United States and what we refer to them as push factors. So here's some statistics for So from 2008 to 2011 there have been about 4,000 roughly, 4,000 people that have been apprehended, and these are youth, these are from 0 to 17 years of age, apprehended at the border in the United States. Mostly in Texas and Arizona. You see the the big surge in 2012. It went to a bit over 10,000 people. If you look from 2012 to 2014, just six months, it's nearly quadrupled close to 45,000 people. So you wonder what has happened. What happened in 2012? There was a number of things that happened in 2012 in all of Central America. One of the things was uh, a coffee rust disease. Coffee rust is this disease that wipes out the coffee crops. Many Central American countries depend on coffee. So they were wiped out. And they're not just wiped out for a couple of months, they're wiped out for three years. Because that's how long it takes. They have to dig up their, their coffee plant, replant, and it takes three years to start, to start picking the coffee beans. What also happened at this time is that recruitment by the gangs increased. They utilized this economic situation in Honduras and Guatemala and El Salvador to heavily recruit. So what they were doing is they were going into these communities, knocking on people's doors and saying, we need your son or we need your daughter to join our gangs." And really, they did not have an option. They have to join. If they don't, they're killed and their families are killed. So what they were doing is they were using their life savings and sending these kids, their own kids, across this devastating journey that Marcelo went through uh, and tried to get to the United States. Not every story is like Marcelo's story. I'd say it's a 50-50 chance when they cross over from Honduras to, to the United States. So here's a picture of La Vista, the train, which many Central Americans have to take to Mexico. Extremely dangerous. And here's some more statistics. So we have a total, of about 51,000 kids, this is again from zero to 17, that were unaccompanied, that were apprehended at the U.S. border. 63 or 61,000 family members were apprehended. And again, this is just in a (coughs) six month period. The U.S. is not the only country deporting Central Americans. Mexico is also deporting Central Americans. As you can see, the whole year 2014, 104,000 people have been deported from the United States. So if you add these two numbers up, it's over 150,000 Central Americans that were deported from Mexico and the United States back to their countries. These are some of the hot spots. These are some of the areas. The big blue areas represent some of the areas where these people are leaving from. San Pedro Sula. There you go. Okay, San Pedro Sula is right here. Where Michael was talking about where he was, you see, it's a huge blue circle. Tegucigalpa, the capital where I live; San Salvador, the capital of El Salvador, and Guatemala City, Seba, Tocoa, So you have a lot of blue spots: Puticagalpa, Catecamas, A lot of blue spots. These are the murder capitals of the world, including countries at war. Honduras is the murder capital of the world, with a with a a homicide rate of 90 per 100,000. This surpasses Syria, this surpasses Afghanistan, this surpasses any country at war. It's the number one country by far. If you look at San Pedro Sula, San Pedro Sula, as a city, has a murder rate of 190 per 100,000. That is unbelievable. Just to give you an idea, Los Angeles last year had a murder rate of 6.3 per 100,000. The murder capital in the United States, I think, is Detroit. And they had about 45 per 100,000. New York City, 4.3 per 100,000. So just to give you an idea of the violent cities here in the United States compared to the violent cities in Central America. So some of the historical reasons for migration. And this has been going on for years have been the long, deep ties between the US and Central America. During the 80s, most of the countries in Central America were at war, were at civil war. And that's when a number of Central Americans went up to the United States to to, uh, reunite with family members and to get out of the violent situation. During the 80s and 90s and even the 2000s, those people stayed in the United States, and their kids or aunts and uncles tried to uh, reunite with them. So they crossed over. Lack of economic opportunities, lack of employment opportunities, lack of educational opportunities is also another reason. Climate change, I talked about the coffee rust. The the rainy season is much shorter than it was 10 years ago. Uh, You have a longer period of drought, you have a longer period of flooding. So this is destroying their crops, this is destroying the, the coffee crops, this is destroying their bean crops, and now they have to export a lot of what they never had to export in the past and then finally violence. To me, violence is the tipping point. So you add all these factors up, and these are reasons to possibly leave, but the majority of people will not leave because of those reasons. The Violence is the tipping point to me. The violence is the reason that they are taking off. And again, why are they coming from Central America? I always get this question, why Central America? As I said before, the homicides rates, the highest homicide rates in the world are in Central America, Honduras being number one, El Salvador being number four, Guatemala being number five, and again, these are not only in Latin America, this is the world we're talking about, including these countries at war. Domestic violence is a huge factor, and the lack of opportunities. I, I uh, About a month ago, I was up in San Pedro Sula talking to, to a woman, and her Twelve or 13-year-old was just killed. He was sent out to go get bread from, uh, by his mother. And he went out getting bread. He bought the bread. And as he's coming back, these gangs kind of surrounded him. And they wanted him to take drugs to another neighborhood. And he said no. And they killed him on the spot. So a couple of hours later, the woman talked to her son, a seven-year-old, and said, can you go find your brother? He went out to look for his brother. He found his brother lying on the street with a couple of gang members still lingering around. They killed him. So, so and this is, this is one of thousands of stories. This is one of a thousand stories. So, so what's going on is that the culture of violence is very fluid in these countries. And it's become desensitized by a lot of people. CRS has been in Central America for about 55 years. Most of our staff. I, we have an office of about 55 people, 99% of them are Hondurans. We hear these stories all the time. All the time, their relatives or someone's being extorted or kidnapped or killed. And, and it's like talking to someone about how sunny it is outside, it's become the norm. So this was a, this was a, a cover of, of The Economist I took years ago, I think in 2011 or 2012. And so this is when it was starting to get bad. One of the generals, one of the generals in Southcom, based in Miami, was saying, Central America is the deadliest zone in the world outside of active war zones. This is no longer true. It's the deadliest zone in the world, including war zones. Just to give you some statistics on, on a couple of things, half, more than half of the population now is under the age of 18. So, youth play a key role in moving these economies forward. Uh, youth are usually both the victims and the instigators in a lot of these crimes. There are about 70 or 80,000 gang members that are based in Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala. There's a huge stigma, there's a huge negative perception against the youth. Because more than half the population are under the age of 18, Many people assume if there's three or four kids on the corner, they assume they are part of a gang, which is just not the case. So this creates this stigma that really uh, isolates these youth forever. They go for a job interview, even if there's a job <laughs> available, they will not get it, because they're either from a certain neighborhood or they're just not known. And the people interviewing them assume that they are in some of these gangs, which is usually not. The case. And what's embedded in Honduras specifically is the huge narco trade. The drugs coming in from Venezuela and Colombia. 90% of the drugs that are in the United States now are stopping in Honduras. And that's the transient point. Planes fly in to San Pedro Sula in the north, where I showed you that bubble in that area, and shipped up through Honduras, through Guatemala, through uh, Mexico, and then make their way to, to the United States. So again. The demand is a huge part of the problem. The demand in the United States is fueling a lot of the violence and a lot of what's going on that we're seeing over there. It's a billion dollar industry. And many people, including law enforcement, are involved in this. They get poorly paid. A lot of the police officers are barely making minimum wage. So how can they turn the other way when they're offered $10,000 to be deposited in their bank account if they don't do anything? Well, they actually don't have an option. <clears throat> so what we also call this is the Central American cold set. Again, so you have the gang extortions, the violence, leads to people fleeing, the family reunification, as well as the desire to study and find other employment opportunities. Uh, so, what also is big factors are these coyotes. Coyotes are, cons- are, are the people that are, they're basically human traffickers. They are responsible for the transportation. They're also in the mix. When these things were happening, when the economic downturn was taking place in Honduras and in the rest of Central America, the coyotes got on board and they offered two for one. It costs an average of someone leaving from Honduras to the United States, it cost them about seven or eight thousand dollars. So what the coyotes were doing is saying, we'll give you two for one. Well, you can do a layaway plan. You can pay us later." Trying to make money off of this situation. So everyone is coordinating on this situation. So it's very giving the people a huge incentive to take off. And to take off right now. So this is a huge part of the problem. Many people you'll talk to. I've met with a number, a number of parents. And I said, well, why did you save this money? And why did you send your kids off? you know it's a very dangerous trek, taking the train or taking buses or going through Mexico. Mexico is by far the most dangerous part of the journey because you have these major cartels. And, and what they all tell me is that I rather have a glimmer of hope to send my, my kids to the United States, and I realize the risk, rather than watch them die in front of me here in here. And that's the case, and how can you argue with that? They know that their time is limited when they're in these places and when they're in this situation. So what they're doing is they have this glimmer of hope and they know that it's a huge risk. They know the risks involved. Everything I'm talking about, they know it. But they would rather send and risk their kid's life, sending them over to to the United States uh, than watch them get shot and killed in front of them. So in the summer, change speeds a bit. In the summer, when this uh, repatriation was coming back in, thousands and thousands of people were starting to be repatriated. Uh, back into Honduras. We were on the front lines. So we received a lot of the kids. We had, we had two partners based in the airport, uh, which is where a lot of the flights were coming in from the United States. And we were based in the bus stations in the north, which all of the people being deported from Mexico were coming by bus. So we were there providing food and shelter. And then we also got into psychosocial support, trying to find out why they left, because there are no case studies. There are no uh, caseworkers, rather, in these countries to find out where they're leaving. And what happens normally is when they come back into Honduras, they're just sent back to their home, not knowing what the situation is, not knowing if they're wanted by a gang or if there's domestic abuse or anything like that. So we started to get some caseworkers, but we just didn't have the resources to do it because there were 50,000 people coming in month. And then the last part, what I'm going to talk about in the next slide is some of the programs, some of the anti-violent programs that we have in Central America to help support people living in their communities. So again, this is some of our responses in Central America. In Guatemala, we we made shelters, and we had two reception areas. In Honduras, we were working very closely with the First Lady, and she was supporting us greatly in receiving some of these kids. El Salvador has an ongoing program that that, uh, supports youth at risk. And we all, in all three countries, we're working with a lot of the partners that have been there for years and have been doing this kind of activity for a long time. So the question I also always get is what can we do? What can we do here? Well, let me tell you what we're doing there and then we'll get into that second part. So we have integrated violence programming, which really is a vocational training program that we had in all of Central America. It's a six-month program. Kids get into, into these programs. And the kids we target are either out of school or out of work. We don't target uh, people that are directly linked to the gangs. But we do get these kids coming the in. Um, and basically, they're provided, a, 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 they're provided with tools and a, and, a, and a skill, construction, working in restaurants, uh, working in their, own, in their own private sector, and we couple up with the private sectors and the local mayors. And what this has done is that this breaks the stigma as well. For two months, they get an internship in a restaurant, and the owner of the restaurant realizes that these are good kids. And 90% of these kids went on <coughs> to, to employment, to permanent employment. This funding ended. This, this program was uh, funded by Nokia and Youth Building International based out of Chicago. The funding ended about uh, two and a half years ago. But it's continued in El Salvador because the CRS in El Salvador is working directly with gang members. And this was very attractive to the donors, specifically the U.S. government. So they're getting a lot of money through USAID to continue these programs in El Salvador. However, if we get funding tomorrow, we can replicate all of these programs that we've been doing two and a half years ago. Our partners are on the ground. The system still works. And there are more youth now than there were three years ago that need this kind of intervention. What we're doing in Honduras is we have 18 million dollars coming in from the Department of Agriculture on a McGovern-Dole program called Food for Education. We work in the state of Intibucá. We target 54,000 kids, and we're finding that the whole purpose of the program is to increase the quality of education, but really get kids back into school. And the attendance rate is now 90 percent, where it was about 30 percent beforehand. So it's, it's really working and we're on a second phase of this and, and uh, we hope to, to be successful in this grant. This is another key factor, is education. So what this, what this program does is not only provide a school feeding, which is a huge incentive for the kids to go to school, it provides transportation, uh, rebuilding of schools, a number of activities. And there's a specific component on security for girls. Transportation is key. Many of the kids have to walk five or six miles a day. If they do walk, it, they take it, and it's a rough, rough, it is very risky, many of the girls do not go to school because of this. So this transportation has increased the girls' attendance, especially in these areas, by almost 100%. And so the Minister of, of Education and the President of Honduras have visited our project a number of times, and they would like to model this program in the entire country which is great. And then also what we do is we meet with your senators, we meet with your congressmen, I just met with uh, the Senate office of Bob Casey yesterday and Congressman uh, Fatah uh, yesterday as well, and this is what we do, we testify in front of Congress because we need funding to continue these programs. Ending violence is only half the problem. We need something to replace it that's positive with workforce employment, education, agriculture techniques, and so on. But we need this, this is not free. We need funds to do (coughs) this. Obama has accepted a proposal from the triangular uh, countries of El Salvador, uh, Northern Triangle, called, El Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala. It's a billion dollar proposal to provide a holistic response, because that's really what's needed. And he's trying to push this through and hopefully he will send it to Congress very soon, and it's called the Alliance for Prosperity. It's a billion dollar-ish, uh, it's a billion dollar proposal that 80% of the funds will go into the country, and I think 20% will be there for increasing the capacity of law enforcement, which is what's also needed. We don't deal with that. Any, every single one of these countries at the US Embassy, they have a DEA attachment, they have ICE, they have Homeland Security, so together with them, with the programs we're implementing, This can be done. This can be done. And a billion dollars is a lot cheaper than what it is to maintain the wall right now. And so obviously many of you know there's a big political scuffle of where we should protect our borders. In my mind, protecting the borders is doing something in Honduras, Salvador, and Guatemala. Not doing something here because no matter how big the wall is, people will still come across. And that's all I have. (laughs)
1: Juan, that was fantastic, Uh, I wish I had an overview like that before I went down, it would have been really valuable. Uh, One of your slides uh, made me think of an experience I had and a question I had for you. It showed young men who were uh, welding, learning about welding. Uh, One of the stories I wrote when I was there uh, was about an an orphanage called Amigos de Jesus. It was founded by local people here. uh, And its goal was to uh, create conditions where uh, through improved education and job skill training and stuff, uh, these young people uh, could have an incentive to stay and not leave. But given the push factors that you described, given the violence, given the... um, employment situation, I found myself thinking, even as I was writing about it, that, OK, so you teach somebody the skills to be a, a good welder. Are they going to have enough business to stay there? Are they going to have the tools they need? Is is there a solution for most of these people really just to leave? Uh, can, can we create conditions in-country that uh, and nobody really wants to leave their country? It's their culture, it's their food, it's their families. Um, but they leave because they have to. Can we? Is it feasible to, to turn it around by, making, by approving conditions in the northern triangle?
2: I think it is. I mean, it's, it's again not just about getting jobs. It's about removing the violence. It's about anti-corruption, moving the violence. It's really a holistic response. And I think the US has a particular role to play since these drugs, these products, are coming to the United States because of the demand. So I think this is something that's always forgotten, and we don't talk about this a lot. Whenever I meet with senators, congressmen, I always bring this up. And I can't tell if they're getting me or not, but this is really the heart of the, of the matter, is, is the demand. So I think the US has to support some of these programs, but I do think if we do have these programs that are workforce development programs, education programs, in countries like Honduras, people will definitely stay. Nobody wants to leave their country. That's the truth. Nobody wants to leave their country, especially on this dangerous journey where you have a 50-50 shot of, of making it. Yeah.
1: I'm happy to open up to questions. I'll ask more questions. but uh, <laughs> Kathy? Um, when you say holistic
3: response, um, we run a cliff. Sanctuary movement, you know, when things are going on in El Salvador and, and so on. So are there are there any parts of the work that you're doing that address that or somehow train folks to be aware and know how to manage
2: things like trauma and breakdown <coughs> of resistance? Good question. We do. So, in this program that, that's called Youth Builders or Jóvenes Consultores in El Salvador, there is a component that deals with psychosocial support and building the capacity of the community to take care of their own, of their own needs. And so, we're, we're training parents, we're training leaders of the community to, to respond to this crisis. And again, it's all a question of funding. Um, but we do have the capacity to do it, and it can be replicated all over Central America uh, if there's funds available.
1: Can you tell
2: us a little bit more about how these violent gangs um, came about and how they took such control over Central America? Very good question. So, during the Civil War in the 80s, many people fled for their lives again because of these wars. And they came out, they, they came to cities like Los Angeles, uh, Houston, New York City, Philadelphia. And so during the 80s, when they were in Los Angeles, I'm going to use it as an example, they arrived in Los Angeles, and there was already a, a big group of Latinos, the Mexicans, were there. And the Mexicans, create they already had their own contingent. They already had their own, I don't want to say gang, but they had their own group of people that were, that were doing it. So these Central Americans created their own gangs. And they started extorting, dealing drugs, because they were not... They were not uh, given proper employment here. So what happened was, in the late 80s, early 90s, a lot of these people were deported. Already understanding what the situation was in the States and they were hiding, they were deported back into Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador. They were out of the country. Many of these people that were deported don't even speak Spanish anymore because they were there in the United States for so long. So they're back in Central America, very heavy unemployment, not a whole lot happening. They continue the activities that they learned in the United States, in Los Angeles, and they create these groups and perfect conditions in Central America with weak government, impunity, and, and uh, law enforcement that, that's easily corruptible. So it was a haven for them. So the way I call it is they got their doctorate, PhD in the States, and they're practicing back at home. And that's really what's happening. So so the majority of the gangs learn the trade in the United States. I'd like to jump in here and ask a question about the corruption. Uh,
1: given that in some cases police don't have gasoline to fill their cars to go out and investigate, in cases where uh, you go and complain to the police and it turns out that they're in on the, mm-hmm. the scam that you've been the victim of. Um, what can be done about that kind of institutional corruption? Your, your presentation showed that the uh, president the first lady, some of those people seem to be on board with some of the, the progressive stuff that you're trying to do. <laughs> but down at the checkpoint level, where someone's shaking you down for money just to continue driving in your car, uh, that's common in, in
2: Honduras, isn't it? And yeah, very common. I mean, so we as, a, as an international NGO... You all, as people that sit in this country, can only do so much. There has to be the will by the government. And Juan Orlando, the president of Honduras, is starting to expedite some of these, these big narco families out to the United States and are getting put in jail, which is great. But they need to do more at the local level. And some of this has to trickle down to these police officers who are shaking people down. And they're starting to do things. But again, this is where, this is where there's a very thin line where the Hondurans have to take over and take responsibility for some of the actions. We can support programming. We can support sustainable uh, jobs for youth, getting out of school. But they have to enforce that there's a, a, a comfortable environment for this to happen. So they have to continue this this work,
1: which is really scary, though, because uh, you're asking people to uh, step up uh, when they can be uh, when they can pay a serious price, right?
2: Yeah, yeah, I mean, oh, so by, by him already extraditing these major families, there's already a price on his head. So he's done the hardest part. Now it's a matter of going down, cleaning up the police force, cleaning up the military, and it's, I'm just saying it's a matter of. It's very difficult. And the big battle is these narco families. A lot of people compare uh, Honduras to Colombia in the 80s, when Escobar was around. That was a much easier war because you had one person. In Honduras, you don't, and no one knows who these people are.
4: You showed us these enormous numbers of unaccompanied children who've been been removed and carried back to Central America. Some of us have clients who are unaccompanied minors and they've made it here and at one time, which I'm aware, have been placed with camera. Are these 51,000...
2: I think there's a mix. So, so maybe some of these people saw a judge, the judge didn't believe their case. What happens when they come here a lot of the time is obviously a lot of these kids do not speak English. They don't know their rights. They're put in front of a judge. They can't answer questions, and they're sent back. And so this is, this is what happens. I think, so 51,000 are sent back, but there is a number that are allowed to stay and be reunified. And again, it depends <laughs> on what state. It depends on the judge and it depends on what the politics of that particular county is. If, if the kids
4: show up in they
2: I'm not too familiar with the process here, but they are supposed to report these to immigration. That's, that's the law. And, and I don't know if it's enforced on this side. Um, they do report, but then mm-hmm. immigration allows to, to send
4: each other, Permits people to come take each
2: other to New Jersey, for example. Right, or. right. I've heard of a number of cases where the kids can stay with their parents. I think it's hard for any kind of judge, regardless of your political affiliation, to send a five-year-old back right, to, 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 uh, to Honduras. So a lot of them have been placed with family members, but a lot have been sent back. There was, a, there was a, another story, a 15-year-old boy, uh, went to the United States, made it to the States, was caught by immigration, sent back. I met with him, I said, what are you going to do? He said, I'm saving money to go back. I'm going back over there. These guys are after me. Went back to, uh, to the States, made it. Again, the judge denied him asylum, and he came back to, to Honduras. Two weeks later, they killed him. So this is, this is one of a thousand stories that's going on. Uh, but for all those stories, there are some, some great stories where people are un- being unified, being reunited with their family members. But there's also the nightmare part of it. With, you know, and, and for me, these conversations that we're having are important because this, this is a war, and it's not taking place in the United States. So it's, it's over there somewhere. So it's easy for us to say, we don't have to do anything about it. It's not a natural disaster that's hit united states but we do have to understand the implications of what we're doing and to me that that's that's one of the most important things is educating people talking to senate talking to congress and telling them what's happening just in, in a room full
1: of lawyers i should be careful what i <laughs> what i suggest but uh, if i understand correctly as a journalist to apply for asylum you got to touch your toe down in the united states to get this special immigrant juvenile visa status you have to be here to apply for it um, there's a the, our government is looking at a pilot project that would vet people in country. That if you want to get an, uh, you know, make an asylum claim, you can make it in Honduras, and you know your, your, uh, the facts that you present would be tested, and you might uh, you know get permission to come. That would be a lot safer, and you wouldn't be riding on the tops of trains and all of things like that. Do you think that's feasible, or uh, it, or once you step forward to ask for that, are the gangs going to target you even more?
2: I think it's feasible that it works. It has to be expedited immediately, because these people have to leave the country. They can't, right now, an average wait for a visa for Honduras is about 10 years. And this is a visa that they have to be, that they will apply for to reunite with a family member in the United States. They don't have 10 years. They don't have two months. They have to leave. So regardless of whether they get the visa or not, they will be leaving. Uh, so it would work. It would be great. It's a safer pathway to get to the United States, but it has to happen fast because they don't have three, four months to wait, even much less ten years to wait for these visas because they're they're sought after and they're leaving for a reason. Yes. Yes. good question, and when, I, when this first started happening, I asked the, the same question to, to a friend of mine who's Nicaragua. And I said, why, 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 is not, why does Nicaragua not have the same numbers as, as the rest of the countries? And he kind of jokingly said, well, because there's only one cartel in Nicaragua, and his name is Daniel Ortega. But in all seriousness, he controls the country. And he has allowed drugs for all the bad that he does in Nicaragua He's, he's made a decision years ago that he will control everything in the country. And I guess there was a deal going wrong or something. And so people don't go. The drug cartels do not enter Nicaragua because of him. Uh, when people migrate out of Nicaragua, they go down south. They go to Costa Rica or Panama. They don't go up north. So you won't get a lot of the numbers because they're going into different countries. They're not coming to the United States. Um, even though Nicaragua is a very poor country, uh, very low health indicators, low educational indicators. However, the violence is what keeping Nicaraguans in Nicaragua, the lack of violence. And it's done for a number of reasons, um, but I think the control that, that, that any dictator would have in a country, these are the benefits of having this country. Well, there is community police. So this this Youth Builders Program was also in Nicaragua. And the Nicaraguan office with CRS there, it's the only country that we worked with the police. And But it, it trickles again, same in Honduras, we're talking about it, corruption. It trickles from the top. You know, if, if the boss says no takes, no corruption, then that's what happens. So he's made a decision a long time ago to do that. The police in Nicaragua are better paid than El Salvador, uh, Honduras, and Guatemala. But again, it's the philosophy of his that, I will control this. So, I think. So we'll, that relates back to what you said about the
3: government.
2: The government having the will. That's right. That's right. That's right.
1: Juan, we, we uh, mentioned that Honduras is a transshipment point for drugs and how how the demand up here is you know, causing the problems and stuff. What is the. And I realize you, you're generalizing here, but what's the. Uh, how, how serious is the drug use problem in Honduras? I mean, I, I know there's, I think there's a drinking problem, um, but what about uh, drugs?
2: No, I, there, there's not much that stays in the country for consumption. The, the majority of the drugs, I would say 90% of them are shipped up uh, through Guatemala, Mexico, into the United States. The people can't afford it, and that's not where the money is in Honduras. And so they're going after the big market, and the market is, is right here. <coughs>
0: So uh, Juan, I just wanted to get maybe some more specific information about the child welfare system. Mm. I represent clients in the counties here in Pennsylvania with special immigrant status clients, you know, I'm going to hit you up later for information, written stuff that I can use, <laughs> um, right. and some, some uh, links. But the uh, so I'm just a little bit curious. I know CRS is kind of taking the place of a child welfare system that doesn't exist, but I'm guessing as in most of Latin America, the laws on the books may have some sort of agency. Can you tell me more about, there, does that agency exist? Are they doing anything? Yeah. Is it just CRS? So there, there was an
2: agency created last summer, actually. So before that, they didn't have no, anything. They didn't, no. have they didn't have anything. So what, what goes, the government really depends on NGOs like CRS, like uh, the Covenant House, um, and other NGOs to take care of the kids. They really haven't set anything up. They did create one, were in, uh, and they made it a ministerial position, which is great. So this person reports right to the president. But again, they're just starting. So what we're trying to do, El Salvador has had one for years. So what we're trying to do is link the governments up to kind of build the capacity and show them that you know, this, is, this, is, this is what's working in El Salvador. Not everything is working, but they're, they're, them dealing with chi- uh, children, case study workers, and so on, works well in El Salvador. So we're trying to link them up. Uh, so the system basically just began. And they still depend completely on international NGOs and U.S. funding. meet You're based in Sorry. Oh, okay.
4: You know, with regard to corruption and uh, foreign aid, is the, the US government money going to uh,
2: the government,
4: Central American government, or is it going directly to an organization such as
2: yours? I think there's a there's a it's a mixed question. So the Department of Defense provides some funding uh, directed to the government, but the majority of development assistant programs comes through USAID, which is the United States government branch that does all the development. So when we get our money, we usually apply through USAID, and it does not go through the government of Honduras, but we work together with them on, on many of these projects. So all of the projects that are implemented by CRS in Honduras, we coordinate with every single, uh, any government ministry that we have to. So most of the development assistance money does not go through Honduras government. Again, I think the, the immigration issue that we're in are in a mess now contributes greatly. And I think this, this law here, and I think other people can speak more clearly about this, but it's not clear what the law is, and a lot of people don't know what it is. So this contributes greatly. Uh, there's a number of things. The demand of the drugs in the United States contributes greatly. The lack of funding to take care of uh, employment opportunities, anti-corruption, anti-violence programs in the country contributes greatly. So I think it's not so much the policy, it's the lack of what the U.S. government is doing to help out Central America that's contributing. Yes. I
3: think my question is, that the U.S. is exploiting. My son was recently there in Guatemala, and he said the only people that have any money are those who have gone up here and gone back with some money or somebody sending it back. This is not a stable economic situation at all. That leads to drugs, as far as I know. So could you speak to what the yeah. U.S. corporations
2: are doing? They definitely have a big role. So the maquilas, the, 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 the warehouses that they build, all the, most of the clothing that we're wearing now are in San Pedro Sula, in Guatemala, in El Salvador. And I think they, they're not doing their due diligence in making sure that, like you said, people are paid a minimum wage, a just wage, and making sure that this is enforced. They're basically there because it's a cheap place to work and the governments are allowing them to work there and I don't know what the, the agreement is between the Honduran government and, the, and these, these, uh, these warehouses, these private sectors. But I think we do have, and this is where we all can play a bigger role, force these private companies to make sure that where they work is a just wage. But this has been going on for years in Central America with Chiquita Banana, uh, I mean everything. This has been going on for decades. But I think you are exactly right. We have the right, as Americans, to make sure that we're not contributing to any of these problems. One of the, it's
1: it's not Central America, it's Mexico, but one of the um, unintended consequences of NAFTA was that corn grown here is sold more cheaply in Mexico than native grown corn, and so (laughs) corn farmers are unable to make a a living in Mexico, and that's driving Mexican uh, immigration across our border. So, um, you're right, policy is critical, and you're right, it's been going on forever, and uh, how do we we really affect it? Try someone else right here. I'll get back to you. I wanted to ask, do you have suggestions
0: about um, how to address the demand side of the drug trade in the United States policy bias?
2: Again, talk to the lawmakers. I mean, you have elected officials that should be reporting to you. Uh, What I always do when I come back is meet with congressmen, meet with senators, and that's really the best way. Keep knocking on their doors and and know what you want. Um, It's this big elephant in the room. No one talks about the demand. When we're all talking about what's going on, the unaccompanied minors is an implication of the demand uh, in the long run. This is not being discussed. So I would say go to your lawmakers, go to your local congressmen, and make sure that they're, they're doing their job. Um, because they're, they're elected by you, and they're working for you. So that's the best thing to do. I've testified in front of Congress and said the same thing. So I'm hoping uh, that this billion dollars that's coming out of the Obama administration uh, is because of the work that we're all doing in pressuring our local lawmakers. Continue to do it. Knock down their doors.
0: Thanks, Bonnie. Uh, so first, I just wanted to clarify, Michael, you brought up that pilot program. So it exists. And so a parent in the United States can you know, try to get their child to the, the U.S. Embassy so that that child can be assessed to see if they can be a refugee. Of course, refugee, you've got to meet the same legal requirements as asylum. It's not easy to get. But the real the barrier there right now, the reason it's not going to be very effective, is that the parent here has to have legal status. In order to get your child through that process, where instead of making the dangerous journey they just you know go to the embassy or whatever,
1: right? You have to have sort of one foot already, or yeah. some some part so of your family has to be established here. So right? Until there's
0: comprehensive immigration reform, That's right. that process won't work very well. Although it is a great idea, <laughs> and it is actually working. It's just Thanks for it's that
1: clarification. Different. That's important. You're right. Um, Can I get one more
3: clarification? Sure. Jeff, no. Okay. In addition to that, uh, it's not always reunification that occurs. We work with a lot of kids who are actually placed in federal foster care. So they literally are here on the company. They might have a distant family member, um, but reunification is generally not the goal. So there is a foster care system that exists in the country. Um other places like the Children
1: and Family Services. But would somebody be eligible for that pilot program to be cleared that's for? A different that's a That's a whole different.
3: Yeah, I'm, I'm going back to something I've said before. So reunification is not always what occurs. Um, as we know, many of the kids end up from the shelter and then they are located, they might end up in Philadelphia because they a <coughs> foster family, as we know.
2: Mm, okay. And these are for the kids at stake, that are all- right. right, they're determined that they could
4: Jim McNeil from Holy Family University up in northeast Philly. Uh, obviously, as a Catholic priest, I'm interested in Catholic social teaching, which in essence boils down to reverence for all that exists. <clears throat> the Lenovo being a Catholic university and hosting is today. Uh, is CRS recommending, in effect, a two-track advocacy? One for the in-country programs, which obviously we'd be talking about funding, which we have, Do you need staffing for those as well? Are you asking for personnel to come? On the other hand, it seems you're advocating as well for an easing of US immigration policy for
2: entrance. Am I correct in what CRS is recommending? Uh, Yeah, basically that's it. And we're working not only advocating on the political side, but being a Catholic priest, we are working with the Bishop's Conference of the United States as well, especially the Latinos who understand the situation to, to come out with a statement and to push. Because right now, I don't think there's one voice of the U.S. Conference of Bishops right now. So yes, we're advocating on all fronts. And at the end of the day, that's what we want. Yes.
1: Talking about I thing isn't that what we're
0: talking about? Yeah. Is this American money going go to go into that as far as dealing with you know, gang activity?
2: There, there is no uh, juvenile delinquency system. And correct me if I'm wrong, but it's all, it's prisons, and that's it. And everything. With adults, is, yeah. Yeah, with adults. It used to be. Right. They have specific um, facilities, and they actually still do have a couple. But they closed with a but closed Most of them. All right. And so, again, combined with impunity and some of these, these gang members, if they can pay off the local police, they get out. But a lot of these uh, heads of these gangs are running the operations through prison. They're in prison, and they're running it. So even prison is not a deterrent so much, because in prison, they're, they have cell phones, they have TVs, they can leave for the weekend, they come back, and they're still running the show. So really, prison there is different than, than what we're thinking about prison here.
1: Let me ask you a personal question uh, about security for yourself and the other people who work for CRS. We're talking about a very dangerous place. Um, what uh, what have you had to do or the people that you work with had to do to uh,
2: keep yourself safe? Low, low profile, low profile. Um, so I don't do a lot of interviews in Honduras. Uh, especially about this, I'll do it for things that are very easy, education, health, but I don't get into this at all. Uh, I'm always asked to go on TV on these talk shows and I said, no, thank you. Um, So these gangs are organized. These narco traffickers are very organized and they're basically extinguishing anything in their way. If you stay out of it. And again, being in in Africa for, for 15 years, I felt more unsafe in South Africa than I do in Honduras. South Africa is not even a top 20 country of, of murder rates. If you watch your P's and Q's, you stay out of the drug business, you will be fine. Knock on wood. Um, the, 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 they're well organized, they're not targeting expats. However, if an expat was involved in the drug business, they don't care who you are. The kidnapping and extortions are done by Hondurans to Hondurans, the wealthy Hondurans, because they know they'll pay, and they know they will not get caught, and the, and the Honduran government won't do anything about it. Once they involve myself, U.S. Embassy gets involved and it complicates their situation and it's just a big pain in the butt for them to deal with that. So again, there's are certain areas in Tegucigalpa you don't drive day or night, you know these areas, we don't drive at night, but there are certain rules that we all follow in, in CRS, all of our 55 staff. Um, and again, a lot of the staff that work in CRS are considered middle class, which would be targeted but they drive rundown cars. They know. Uh, they're very smart about what they do, uh, and they just—they're very careful. And that's—you what you have to be—you know—all security is always on the back of my mind. Whenever we have a meeting in CRS, the first thing we talk about is security. Then we go into everything else. It's always on the top of my mind, and it's always an issue at the table. Yes, the blue shirt.
3: It's CRS uh, talked about it? doing a paper on immigration. And a lot of it has to do with the myths that Americans mm. hold about these young people and what a threat they are, and that violence will increase, that they are a drain on our economy. And uh, he's got a lot of good graphs and statistics to, to, to address those things. Is CRS specifically, when we you know of an organization that is working to, I mean, it's not Rico, but to educate the American public about what the reality of these young people is, who Marcel is, who Domingo is.
2: I think that's our role, and that's why I'm here: is talking to you guys so you understand the realities on the ground, and hopefully that goes back to your communities, your churches, and talking about it. There's not so much there's not an NGO that does this that I know of, but it's really talking about the realities on the ground and telling stories and sharing data, and that's what I find is very helpful, and that's what the, the politicians want exactly. Um, so, so, really, it's, it's up to us to really educate the people and, and tell them what's going on. Unfortunately, I think the political climate right now is you know, people are just coming in to steal our jobs. And I've met with, with, with Republicans privately, I met with Mitch McConnell's group and him. Privately, they know what's going on. Publicly, they have to toe the line. But, they, but I think we still have to beat down the doors and share this information. And, and when you do hear how oh, people are coming over, why would anybody risk their life uh, traveling 20 days, going through two countries, to come here? They really want a job that bad, they stay in their country. So I think it's a matter of us sharing this information and educating the people. Okay.
3: And just the comment a little bit. Um, so I work for CRS here in the US, and um, we work with all the dioceses in the US. We work with about 71 colleges in the US across the U.S. Uh, Many of them are Catholic, but not all of them. Uh, We're also working with a lot of Catholic high schools as well. So we are trying
2: So CRS does, that's the NGO that does it. Uh,
1: This this is not a question only for Juan, but it's for everybody. Um, There are a lot of places in the world that are much more dangerous than the United States. There are a lot of places that are a lot less desirable than the United States. Should the United States be the sanctuary for anybody who wants to come here?
2: (laughs) I, I think that's who we are. Gracias.
1: Be your spin on you broke it you bought it huh <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
4: although something like fifty one thousand uh on company miners were included last year a lot of them had, uh and they but disparse no problems throughout the country you know. there are communities of immigrants from say Honduras and you know, Atlanta County New Jersey and Guatemala and south of the county Delaware do you track these, these communities?
2: No, we don't. We track everything in Honduras. So we'll track when they leave and when they come back. We don't know what happens when they're in the states, except anecdotally. So Catholic Relief Services doesn't do
4: this on any sort of national
2: basis? In the United States? Yeah. No. Uh, I don't think we do. I don't even know if we track it. But we, CRS works mostly outside of the United States. Catholic Charities does. They are based in the United States, and basically they are the CRS of the United States.
4: How do you relate
1: to the Catholic Church in Honduras? How do you, or CRS,
2: relate to them? So with with, I'm very close with the Cardinal, Cardinal Rodriguez, and we do most of our programming through Cajas, which is the developmental arm of the of the Catholic Church in the in the uh, in Honduras. Um, we're keeping in touch with them all the time. Again, CRS was invited by the Catholic Church, as well as the government. So we have to keep an open line to both. Um, some projects, so my one of my biggest roles is to meet with them on a regular basis. So I meet with the director of Caritas, I meet with the Cardinal, who's the president of the Bishops Conference in Honduras. Sometimes we work with them, uh, a proposal comes out, sometimes they'll be interested, sometimes they're not, sometimes a local NGO's uh, better position than them, but we're always dealing with them. We're always working with, uh, with the Catholic Church. Thank you. Yeah.
1: Oh, okay, well, uh, that's our time. I want to thank Juan again. It was fantastic. It was great to have you here.